Welcome or welcome back to the Bridge Churches podcast, where we are committed to building irresistible bridges between the unchurched and Jesus Christ. We are so glad that you're here, and wherever you're listening from, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. All right, Christmas stories. Got a favorite? All right. Guess not. Christmas stories. There are so many different stories, so many amazing stories, so many beautiful stories, so many hilarious stories that we tell during this time of the year. And I think one of the things that makes the Christmas stories so popular, I think the reason we tell them over and over and over again, the reason we read them over and over again, the reason we watch them over and over again, isn't so much the story in and of itself, is it? That the story's great, but they're kind of all the same, especially if you watch Hallmark movies. Uh, Any fans of Hallmark Christmas movies? No? Okay feel bad for some of you, especially some of you husbands. Oh, mercy. But listen, some of the things about the stories, it's not so much the story, because in some part, in large part, all of the stories are kind of predictable. They're all kind of the same story. But what makes the stories great and what makes them the stories that we love is really, I think it's the characters within the story, isn't it? I think for many of us, it's the characters in the story. We love the characters. There's something about them that we kind of connect with, something about them we kind of relate to. And every single person in this room, every single person watching right now online, all of us have different Christmas, you know, characters that are our favorites. For some of us, it's it's Ralphie and the Red Rider BB gun. For me, it's Kevin McAllister. More importantly, the Wet Bandits. I just love the Wet Bandits. Um, but but them, some of it's uh, you know Clark Griswold or cousin Eddie. Anybody got a cousin Eddie in your family? You just kind of stroll. Yeah, I know you do. For some, how many of you are the cousin Eddie in your family? Right. So so we've all there, there's there's cousin Eddie. There's of course the Grinch who we're going to look at his story on Christmas Eve, and I'm really excited about that. And really quickly uh, to all the people who have had a hand and do have a hand right now in making our Christmas Eve service happened this year. I just want to say a huge shout out to all of you. You guys are working so hard. People are in here throughout the week and working at home, doing an amazing job. If you haven't registered yet, as Chris said, you really want to do that. And more importantly, if you haven't invited someone, do so today. You will not know what could happen as a result of your invitation. And I promise you, everybody is cooking up something really great uh, for Christmas Eve. But some of us love the Grinch. Others of us love Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. There's Frosty the Snowman. Um, There's Buddy the Elf. There's Turbo Man, um, who else is there? Oh, the Haynes sisters, uh, Wallace and uh, what's the other? Wallace and Davis. Um, there's John McClain, of course. Um, anybody else? Who am I forgetting? Um, oh yeah, Jesus. Um, can't forget Jesus. Um, and isn't that funny how that happens? How there's all these Christmas stories, and then there's the Christmas story. There's the main character, Jesus, and it's amazing how we can go the entire Christmas season and watch 76 Hallmark movies and fail to to, to listen to or to read or to even think about the story, the Christmas story, and think about Jesus at all. And so what we're doing in this series is kind of trying to bring us all back to that place. And if today, um, if I had the opportunity to sit with every single one of you over eggnog or hot chocolate, or more importantly, a coffee, if I were to sit down with you and ask you the question, this would be an odd question to ask, but if I was to ask you this question, who do you identify with most in the Christmas story? If I were to ask you that question, what would your answer be? Be Mary? Immaculate conception? Probably not. Um, maybe it's Joseph. Eh, we don't really know a whole, whole lot about him. The, the shepherds, well, they're kind of dirty, kind of smelly. They're kind of afraid, don't want to be, not, not really them. Uh, wise men, yeah, seems like an oxymoron. Uh, they didn't get that in the nine. You guys are awake, man. This is good. Um, man. Uh, I'm thinking, who else? Uh, baby Jesus? No, that doesn't work. Like, like, if I were to ask you this question, think about it for a second. Who is it for you? Who do you most identify with in the Christmas story? 
Uh, for me, and this is gonna become clearer as we go along, uh, for me, honestly, the person that I identify with most in the Christmas story is the person that we would probably consider to be the villain of the Christmas story. And that's King Herod. King Herod. Now I'm going to explain this in just a few moments, but to kind of get to the end and then kind of work our way back and make a case for this. I believe that every single person in this room, regardless of age and stage, I believe that every single person in this room, every single person who's on the other side of that camera watching at home today or watching later, every single person who gets ears to this message, I think all of us in some way, shape or form have something in common with King Herod, more than we can probably see and certainly more than we could ever admit. Now, I'm gonna explain this a little bit. King Herod, he was the client king of Judea, which meant that Rome had actually made him the king of Judea. He wasn't even Jewish, and that was something that drove all the Jewish, of course, drove all the Jewish people crazy. He was king at the time of Judea, the time that Jesus was born. Now, he was an incredibly uh, smart man. He was very politically astute. He was tremendously successful. But the thing that got Herod in the end, it was his ambition, and I think that's why for many of us, if not all of us, I think some of us, we all have something in common with Herod. He was known at that time in that age, he was known as Herod the Great. More importantly, specifically, he was known as Herod the Builder. He had built some incredible things. He rebuilt the temple. He built port cities. He built the aqueducts. He had built so many amazing things. He was, he was an exceptionary person in terms of his talent and what he accomplished. But in the end, it was his ambition that got the best of him. And again, that's why I believe that all of us, to some degree or another, all of us have something in common with King Herod. Now, if you're joining us for the first time today, as Chris said, we've been in this series called Christmas Stories. And the point of this entire series is to look at the Christmas story and more specifically, some of the stories within the Christmas story. And as we look at these stories, we're gonna discover some similarities, some things, some things in these people's stories that have implications for our story today. And so today I wanna look a little bit at King Herod and a few other people's story. And as we do, in order to understand the real significance of Herod's story, we have to kind of understand some of his backstory, some of his history. In 44 AD, Julius Caesar was murdered. He was assassinated. And after he died, his nephew, a man named Octavius, Octavius and his friend, Mark Anthony, they decided to band together and that they were going to basically find everybody who was responsible for his uncle's death and they were gonna take them out, that they were gonna avenge the death of his uncle. And so they band together, they brought all their allies together and they went throughout the region and they were going and they were capturing these people. They were killing anybody that had anything to do with his uncle's death. And people around the known world at that time, they understood something very quickly that eventually these two men, they were gonna come to a head because as they took care of all the enemies of, of Octavius' uncle, they realized that eventually there was only gonna be two people left, Mark, Anthony, and Octavius, and eventually they were gonna come to a head because eventually there would be only room for one sheriff in Rome. So these two guys, they continued to gain popularity. They became more and more famous. They became more and more powerful. They began to uh, collectively get more and more allies, you know, different legions from the Roman legion. They were basically fortifying their armies, fortifying their power. That's your history lesson. And here's where Herod comes in. Herod continued to, be to befriend Mark Anthony and his wife. Okay, Mark Anthony had a famous wife from Egypt and her name was anybody? Cleopatra, that's right. Nine o'clock didn't get that either. You're just, you're just leveled up today, man. It must be the coffee or the snow. You're feeling Christmas eats great. Cleopatra and all the people, all the Roman citizens, they hated Cleopatra. 
And they believed that Cleopatra was trying to manipulate things to bring some sort of unity between Rome and Egypt. And they were afraid that eventually she would become queen and they were terrified of her. And they had all these kind of misgivings about Cleopatra and what her intentions were. And sure enough, as things continued to go on, Herod continued to befriend Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. He continued to host parties in their honor. He continued to send them lavish gifts. He supported them in a rebellion that they were a part of outside of Alexandria. So this continued to go on, this dynamic, this relationship continued to go on. And as was predicted, it was understood by many. Eventually, as these two men gained more and more popularity, more, became more and more famous, gained more and more power, they came to a head and there was a civil war that happened between Octavius and Mark Anthony. And, and unfortunately, for, uh, unfortunately for Herod, sorry, um, he bet on the wrong horse. He, he, he had supported Mark Anthony and Mark Anthony and his allies were defeated almost instantly. And so this happens, you know, the civil war happens. Mark Anthony, they're all defeated. They, they hightail it back to Alexandria. And during that time, Octavius became Caesar Augustus, the very first emperor of Rome. So this all happens. The civil war happened. It ended quickly. And Herod is back in Judea and he's like, oh my word, I have supported the wrong person. And now he's got three options. He can just go ahead and kill himself and get it over with. Two, he can run, but they're going to find him. Or three, he can just kind of hunker down and hope they ignore him. Those are his options, as most would see it. But because Herod was so savvy, because he was so politically astute, because of his ambition and his way of, of seeing things, because he was so focused on not only building, but protecting his legacy, he, on his own, came up with a fourth option. He, he did something unbelievable. He did something that would prove to be an unbelievably smart political move. Here's what he did. He got on a, on a boat and he sailed uh, to the island of Rhodes where he knew uh, Caesar Augustus, the artist formerly known as Octavius was. He knew that he was there and he showed up, basically strolled up to the front door, knocked on the door and said, I'm here to speak to the emperor of the Roman empire, essentially the most powerful man in the world. He says, here I am. And the people at the door as they greeted him thought, what in the world are you, are you nuts? Like you are an enemy of the state. You are the most wanted man that we know of. We were gonna come looking for you. We were gonna deal with you anyway. And you show up here, are you crazy? But that's what he did. And they let him in. Caesar Augustus is there. They let him in. He walks into the great room or wherever it was he was. And, and Herod, King Herod, he gives this spectacular speech in front of Caesar Augustus and everybody that was in the room with him. And here's essentially what he said. He said, as you know, I was a friend of your enemy, Mark Anthony. And as you know, from the very beginning, I was a loyal supporter of his, a supporter of his from the beginning. I was a loyal supporter of his throughout the, the civil wars. I was, a, you know, I was loyal to him to the very end. And so what you know about me is that when I pledge my loyalty to someone, I am loyal to them to the very end. And oh, great Caesar, I pledge my loyalty to you. Wow. He was so impressed by this speech. He was so amazed by the gall of it that not only did he not kill him and not only did he not take Judea away from him, Caesar Augustus leveled up Herod's kingdom. He gave him Samaria, Jericho, and Gaza, and then he sent him on his way. And that is King Herod. Super smart guy, very talented, very politically astute. But what got him in the end was that because of his ambition, because of his desire to control people and control situations and build and control his legacy, he just made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. He had 10 wives. 
He, he changed his, his will constantly. He had a number of sons and he would go to one son and say, hey, I think um, you might be king. And then he changed his mind. No, I think you might be king or maybe you're the right person. You're the right person. He even had some of his own sons killed because they weren't good enough in his mind to be king. And he was so focused on his legacy that if they weren't good enough, they weren't worth having. And so he killed some of his sons and it was so bad to the point when he come to talk to his sons about the kingdom, they're like, nah, we're good dad. I don't really, nah, really. And that's not really for me. I'll do something else. I mean, he was so consumed with, he was so focused on controlling the kingdom, growing his kingdom, building his legacy that when he felt it in any way slipping away, he got swept away in anger. He, he killed one of his wives. He killed rabbis, so many rabbis in Jerusalem and in Judea. It got to the point where rabbis didn't want to go anywhere near the city of Jerusalem because when Herod got upset, when Herod got angry, angry he, was likely, he was likely to do anything. He was a man who was so, so consumed with what he had and what he was building and who and what he could control that oftentimes he was out of control. So that a little bit, if you fast forward just a little bit, Herod is 70 years old. And when he was 70 years old, he came down with a kidney disease, a very, very painful kidney disease. And so now he's not only older, but he's really, really sick. And so as you can imagine, someone like him, when he was that sick and when he was getting up there in age, he began to become even more focused on, because of his mortality and his awareness of his mortality, he became even more focused. He became even tighter to his, his kingdom his kingdom, not the kingdom, his kingdom and his legacy. And he held on even tighter. And as this is happening in his life, as he finds himself in this place, he gets the worst possible news imaginable. Five miles south of him, there is a new king. And this new king is learning how to walk this is how Matthew tells Herod's Christmas story. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, this is where Herod was king. During the time of King Herod, Magi, we call them wise men from the east, they came to Jerusalem and they asked a question. Now you have to imagine, you have to try to understand the context of how this would land. These guys are walking around Jerusalem and this is the question they ask. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And people are like, shh, are you out of your mind? Do you know Herod? Keep it down, right? Keep it down. What are you talking about? They're like, what you, where is he? Where is this one who is born? We, we came to Jerusalem because it's the capital. We know we're close. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star. We saw his star when it rose and we have come to what? To worship him. Well, when King Herod heard this, as you can imagine, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And as you understand the backstory, you can understand why all of Jerusalem was disturbed when Herod was disturbed. Because when Herod was disturbed, things were dangerous. When Herod was disturbed, he could do anything because he was so consumed with controlling his kingdom and controlling his legacy. And suddenly, everything that he had, everything that he was, everything that he had built, his entire legacy, suddenly, in a moment, was at risk. The story continues, when he had called together all the, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and you have to remember, if you were called in front of Herod and you were Jewish, you were scared, right? And so Herod, he calls in all these, these people of power, all these people with this religious insight that he ne didn't necessarily have, and he asked them the question, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Where is he? Where, where is this all supposed to happen? And they said, in Bethlehem, in Judea, and they're probably thinking, 
how do you not know this? You should know this. You're like, every Jew knows this. You're, you're the king of the Jews. Like every little Jewish boy grew up, they know that this passage from our scriptures, from, from what we call the Old Testament. Like you should know this. But you, Bethlehem and Judea, they replied for this is, go back one second, go back. For this is what the prophet has written. It's, but you, Bethlehem, and this had been prophesied a long, long time ago, in the land, uh, yeah, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come, get this, ooh, out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is like for Herod, this is the worst news imaginable. So Herod, he called the Magi. He called them secretly. He's like, shh, we're gonna do a little bit of a reconnaissance mission here, okay? So he called them secretly and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search carefully the child and watch this, as soon as you find him, as soon as you find him, watch this, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Uh-huh. Right. Well, after they heard, after they heard the king, they went on their way and the star that they had seen when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, you know the story. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They were overcome. They were just overjoyed. And on coming to the house, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. They worshiped him. Now this word worship, we use this word a lot in modern church today. And sadly, inaccurately, we use it synonymously with singing. But worship is not singing. Worship isn't music. You're not on the worship team or the worship isn't good at that church. Worship is so much more than music. Worship is being in the presence of someone and having the understanding that because of who they are, there should be a sense of awe. And worship is essentially doing whatever you need to do mentally, physically. Worship is essentially doing whatever it is you need to do to surrender or to submit yourself to that person. That's what worship is. And so here you have these wise, wealthy men who have traveled a long, long time and they find themselves in the presence of a baby, a baby who has no actual physical power, but because of who they believe this baby is, they bow down and they worship him. That is their response. And five miles away, Herod has a completely different response. He's like, have you seen those guys? Where are those guys? Where are the Magi? Anybody seen them? Have you seen them? Have you seen them? You, 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 and I want you to go stand out by that road and I want you to tell me the minute. I mean, he is freaking out because he is so focused on and worried about controlling things. He's been that way his whole life. His entire life has been about controlling situations, controlling narratives, controlling people, and controlling outcomes. That's been his whole life, controlling situations, controlling narratives, controlling people, and controlling outcomes. And he is not about to start worshiping anyone in this moment. He is not about to surrender or submit to anyone. And that, that is why I believe every single one of us in this room is more like Herod than we can see or possibly admit. That's why I admit I am more like Herod than I would like to admit. Are you? 
Like, I don't mind leveraging God when God is gonna help me build my kingdom, right? But the whole idea, this whole idea of writing God or writing anyone a blank check with my life, the whole idea of surrendering or submitting to anything or to anyone, the whole notion of the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? That doesn't come naturally to any of us, does it? Why? Because there's a little bit of Herod in all of us. And the story goes on, and having been warned, and having been warned in a dream, I love this, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they, the Magi, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, um, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So God is speaking to different people in a similar way through a dream. And the dream says, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is gonna search for the child to kill him. And so what did he do? What did he do? He got up. He, was, he responded in obedience. He got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they fled for Egypt. And if you're anything like me, you can just kind of hear the soundtrack getting epic. It's building. It's coming to the crescendo. Dun, 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 right? And when Herod realized that, the Magi out, or that he was outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And when Herod was furious... It was dangerous. When Herod was furious, people died because Herod was consumed. They consumed with controlling outcomes. No matter what happened, no matter what didn't happen, Herod was consumed by and consumed with controlling outcomes. Even when he backed the wrong leader of Rome, somehow, some way, he found a way. He was bold enough, he was crafty enough to figure out a way to how to even control that outcome. He was the master of controlling outcomes, and he had determined that no matter what did or didn't happen, he was not about to bow down to a baby king. And so... He gave orders that we can't possibly imagine him giving. He gave instructions to his soldiers that we can't possibly imagine them following through on. Because he was furious, he gave orders. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. If you won't give me the one, if you won't identify the location of the one, we will opt for the nuclear option and we will kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And so they did. One horrible morning, one horrible afternoon, one horrible evening, we don't know when it was, but what we do know is that Herod's soldiers rolled through the teeny tiny town of Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem. They went into every house. They went into every hut in the surrounding areas and they took out every boy who was two years old and younger and they murdered them in front of their family. And any family members that got in the way were murdered as well. And Mary lived with the knowledge of this for the rest of her life. Can you imagine that? Soon after that, very soon after, in fact, in the same year, Herod died a painful death as a result of the kidney disease that he had. Just before he died, he gave instructions to his soldiers that his people were to take out all the wealthy, influential, and distinguished men in Jerusalem, round them all up. I want you to put them all in prison. And on the day that I die, you are to execute all these influential men. Because Herod knew 
that on the day he died, there would be a party to beat all parties in the streets of Jerusalem. So he set this instruction in motion because he wanted there to be mourning in Jerusalem on the day that he died. Well, Herod did die. And when he died, they released all these influential men and they didn't follow through on his orders. Things didn't end the way Herod had planned them to. What did happen is this, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared again in a dream once again to Joseph and said, get up, second time, happened again, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. And in this twist of history, Herod, Herod the builder, Herod the great, King Herod, in this twist of fate that we believe as believers is providential, Herod the Great, Herod the Builder, Herod the one who had rebuilt the temple, had built all these amazing things. Suddenly, Herod is a footnote in the story of Jesus. Can you imagine trying to explain that to Herod the last few hours he was alive? Can you imagine doing that? It's like, Herod, I got some good news and some bad news. And Herod's like, okay, give me my dessert first. And he's like, okay, here, here, here's, here's the good news. Um, 2,000 plus years from now, people are still gonna be talking about you. <laughs> That's awesome. That's incredible. Yeah, I know. I know. It's good news. In fact, people all over the world are going to be talking about you. They're going to be talking about you in languages you can't imagine, in places that haven't been discovered yet. I mean, they're, they're going to be talking about you. In fact, there's going to be a group of people where it's snowing outside on a Sunday morning. They're going to be sitting in rows. Um, they're going to be people who are going to gather in circles in homes, and they're going to read a story. And when they do, they're going to read about you. And Herod's like, man, this is amazing. Yeah, I know. That's the good news. Okay, give me the veggies. All right, well, the bad news is you're a B character in the story. Well, actually, you're a footnote in the story of a baby who became the king of the Jews, who became the savior of the world. The 2,000 plus years later, you won't be remembered as Herod the Great or Herod the Builder. You'll be remembered at best as Herod the Butcher. In fact, you're not even going to be remembered as that. You're not going to be remembered for rebuilding the temple. You're not going to be remembered for the aqueducts and the port cities. You're not going to be remembered for all the amazing things that you built and all the accomplishments you had. You will be remembered as someone who was five miles away from the birth of the Son of God, and you missed your opportunity. That's how you will be remembered. 80 years later, 80 years later, Herod's long gone. 80 years later, Jesus grew up to be a man. He performed miracles. He was crucified, buried. Stone was rolled in front. Three days later, he rose from the dead, ascended to the Father. 80 years later, Nero is gone. Tiberius is gone. Caesar is long gone. 80 years later, the temple has been completely destroyed and all that Herod had built, all that Herod had spent so much of his life, so many years building and protecting, 80 years later, it's all gone. 80 years later, the apostle John, who we looked at last week, who wrote the book in the Bible that we know of as the book in the Bible, naming John, interesting name, we looked at it last week. 80 years later, John wrote his gospel, as he said in his own words, so that you might believe. And remember, this is the same John who, again, we looked at his words last week, but this is the John who took Mary, Jesus' mother, from the foot of the cross because in his dying breaths, Jesus asked John, take my mother to be your mother and mom. I want you to view John as your son. And so they left together. They spent the rest of her life. He took care of her. 
So John had had the opportunity to hear this story that we know so well. He'd heard it from her lips. He had seen it in her eyes over and over and over again. If anybody had the opportunity to say, Mary, did you know? Mary, what was it like? Mary, what was it like when you fled from Egypt and you knew that everybody that you were leaving behind was in jeopardy because of the wrath of Herod? Mary, what was it like when you heard how your friends, your friends lost their sons because of your son? Mary, what was that like? John had heard this story over and over and over again. This is John who not only heard those stories, but this is John who walked and talked with Jesus. This is John who saw Jesus do things nobody else could do, saw him perform miracles that nobody could or had performed. This is what was John who saw Jesus crucified, buried. This is John who who was with a risen savior. And 80 years later, he's an old man and he sits down to put this to paper. He sits down to summarize this for you and for me. And this is so important for all of us. Regardless of what you do and don't believe, this is so important for you today. John wrote this so that you might believe. And what he wrote is so important and it is so powerful. This is what he said. He said, in him, meaning Jesus, in him was life, past tense. In him was life. And he says that life was the light, again, past tense, that life was the light of all mankind. It was not a Jewish light. This was not a light for Israel. This was a light. This was a life for all mankind. John is writing about this, and then he seems to somehow move from speaking in the past tense, and he begins to change the way he's speaking. It's not about, this is what I saw, this is what I witnessed, this was what I experienced, and suddenly he moves into the present tense to send you a message, and to send me a message. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light, John said, the light shines right now. The light shines in the darkness presently, all these years later. This is 80 years later. The light still shines. The light is shining, present tense. John had been exiled to a place called Patmos, It looks like the Roman Empire has won. It looks like the ancient Jewish temple will never, ever be resurrected. Ancient Judaism, it appears, is gone forever. John has lost family members. John has lost friends. And yet looking back as an old man, he says that life, that was the light of all mankind. And then he punctuates it with this powerful statement. And he says, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot swallow it up. The darkness has not overcome it, has not overwhelmed it. The darkness has not blown it out all these years later. Christmas stories. There's so many to tell. There's so many to tell. This is just a little bit of Herod's story. It's just a little bit of the Magi story and it brings us to you and I wonder... I wonder, what will your story be? What will your story be in relation to the Christmas story? What will your story be in relation to Herod's story, in relation to the Magi's story? Like Herod, will your story be a story of resistance or taking your cue from the Magi, will your story be a story of worship? 
Will your story be about how you spent your entire life building your kingdom instead of accepting the invitation to participate in the kingdom of God? Will your story be about how you lived your entire life clinging to everything that you had that you'd let go of anyway? Would would your story be about how you clung to everything tightly, everything that you had? Or will your story be a story of a man or a woman who surrendered everything because they realized that everything they had wasn't even theirs to begin with? Will your story be a story about my way or God's way? My will or thy will? What will your story be? What will your story be? And see, the interesting thing is, the interesting thing is, and you know this, I'm not gonna tell you anything you don't know, but sometimes we don't really think about this this way. It's kind of morbid, but I think it's powerful. Someday, someone is gonna tell your story. Do you know that? Someday, someone is gonna tell your story as it relates to the Christmas story. And they're either gonna have to make something up or they're gonna be able to tell the truth about how at some point in your life, even though you had doubts, even though you went through things that you wouldn't wish on anybody, that that even though you had your questions and, and, and things didn't happen a certain way, that even though all this had happened in your life, that somehow the darkness had not blown out that light in your life and that at some point in your life, you surrendered your life, you submitted your life, you surrendered your will and you bowed down and worshiped Jesus Christ, the light that is life. The darkness, the darkness is real. And as you look at your life, there's the darkness in our world, but there's also the darkness in your past, isn't there? There's the darkness in your circumstances presently. And someday somebody's gonna tell your story and I wonder in that moment when they're telling your story, what will your story be? Will it be that you, you were overcome by the darkness or will it be that somehow, some way, even though life had knocked all the life out of you, even though life had knocked all the hope and all the faith out of you, even though there were all these things that did and didn't happen, that there were all these unmet expectations and there were all these unanswered prayers and even though things didn't work out the way that they were supposed to, the way that you had planned to, the way that you'd hoped they would, that even though people didn't do everything that they were supposed to do on your behalf or maybe they did things that put you in a situation that you should never have been in. That maybe despite the darkness, the hypocrisy that you've seen in the church, I mean, I get it, whatever the darkness is in your life, isn't it true, isn't this amazing that somehow, some way, as real as all that darkness is in your life, isn't it amazing to think that somehow the light still hasn't gone out in your life? And the reason I know that is because that's why you're here. That is because as dark as things may be, and as real and raw as things may be, and as... uh, You could tell your story and we would all just be like, wow, I can't believe that's what you've been through. There's something in you that like the light just hasn't gone out. That's why you're here. That's why you're watching online. That's why you're listening whenever this is for you. It's because that light has not gone out. The darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome it. That's why you're not only here today, but that's why from time to time you find yourself having conversations with a God that you're not even sure you believe in anymore. Why? Because the darkness cannot overcome it. And as much as it tries, and as much as it tries to deny it and, and, and just disturb it and, and just blow it out and consume it, it just can't. There's still an ounce of hope in you. 
there's still a glimmer of faith in you. There's still an ember of light that you just can't stop looking for and looking at, and that's why you're here. And so I wonder, what will your story be in relation to the light that is life? Is it gonna be like Herod? Is it just gonna be where you continue to live this life trying to control everything, control people, control circumstances, just control, 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 and build, 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 my kingdom come, my will be done on earth, I don't care where it is? Is that your life? I think there's something in you as there's something in me that just knows there's something more to this life than that but there's just a part of you that can't seem to let go of the desire and the instinct to control it all anyway. And I wonder, what would it look like if this Christmas, what would it look like if this Christmas season, you, like the Magi, came to a place where you responded appropriately as you were in the presence of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, and you humbly bowed your knee and you surrendered who you are and all that you have, and you worshiped him. Stop trying to manipulate him. Stop trying to leverage him to control and build your kingdom, but you actually worshiped him. What would that look like in your life, I wonder? Herod never found out, and he lost it all anyway. Instead of simply surrendering it and exchanging his kingdom, he lost it all. And it would be tragic if your story repeated his. So let me ask you again, what will your story be? What's the story you want told when your time comes and that person stands and speaks about you and your life, I wonder? All of us have things in our lives. All of us have people in our lives. All of us have circumstances we're trying to control. All of us have outcomes we're trying to make happen and to see through. All of us have dreams we're trying to push through. And for many of us, we don't care who gets hurt along the way or what I have to do to get there. For others of us, it has little to do with things and it has everything to do with people. And we are so focused on controlling people and making them be who and what we want them to be. And we are so focused on that. And it's still this, this, this control. I get it. I get it. I shared in the first service and I realized that I'm more like Herod than I'd like to admit. And that many times what's derailed my faith and caused me to lose hope is how hard I cling and how hard I try to make things happen and be what I want it to be. Yesterday, I sat in our living room and I was staring at our Christmas tree and I was taken back to five years ago yesterday when I sat on that very couch and looked at that very same tree and, and I was just overwhelmed with, with anger and confusion and pain. I was angry and I was angry at God. Lisa and I, my wife, we had, we had tried for years to have a baby. And we had, I talked a little bit about this last week and some of you have heard me talk about this before, but in light of where I am and where we are, I just feel like I have to share it again. But for, for five years, we, we tried to have a child and treatments didn't work and nothing seemed to work. 
We prayed, people prayed, nothing. And then one day we got the news. A $7 test told us that our dreams had come true. We were through the roof. We were so excited, man. We were, we were ready to tell everybody. We, we could hardly keep it in, especially the people that knew what was going on. It was as if God had set the table for this Christmas miracle. And then for some reason I couldn't understand, he kind of came by and went and pulled it right out from under us and everything crashed. And on December 10th, five years ago, our hearts were broken. Hope was crushed. And I just wanted to fix it. I wanted to change it. I wanted to solve it. But I was so angry. God, why aren't you helping me get what I want? Why aren't you helping me build my kingdom? Why aren't you doing what you should do for me? You work for me. What is going on? More like Herod than I'd like to admit. And it was Christmas. And I missed it completely. Didn't understand it. Had it backwards. I was trying to control my kingdom and leave my legacy. In that season, in my anger, I, one, one morning I was reading my Bible and I read, came across a passage in 2 Kings chapter 4 where the prophet Elisha spoke to a woman who had given up hope of ever having a child. And the prophet said to her, by this time next year you will have a son in your arms. And I held on to that verse and I shared it with Lisa whose faith was so much stronger and continues to be so much stronger than mine. She's better looking and she's got way more faith than I've got. And I'm in awe of her faith. And her faith helped me to have faith. And sure enough, a year and five days later, we held our son in our arms. And five years to the day after the greatest heartbreak, we celebrated our son's fourth birthday in this building. And as I sat looking at that same tree, as I sat on that same couch and in that same room, about the same time of the night, it hit me once again that maybe, just maybe, for all that I know or all I think I know, that maybe somehow I just missed it. And that maybe this life isn't about my kingdom, but maybe, just maybe, I've been invited to play a role and something bigger than that. And maybe, just maybe, you have too. So I wonder again, what's your story gonna be? I hope you don't repeat Herod's mistake. And I certainly hope I don't either. And so, as we close today, the band is gonna come and they're gonna share a beautiful song that speaks to worship. And yes, it's put to song, but it's so much more than a song. It's really a declaration of our heart's desire to say, I worship, I surrender. Understanding what worship is, I surrender. And you know what the surrender is in your life. Maybe it's something, maybe it's someone. For some of us, it's our money. And we think, as Chris said earlier, we think it's mine, it's my kingdom, it's mine. I earn, it's my, 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 no, maybe we just missed it. Or maybe it's someone and we think that we somehow have this ability or this right or this power to control. Whatever it is for you, whoever it is for you. As we enter into this Christmas season, as we continue to journey together, I just wonder what would it look like if you were just to surrender, whoever or whatever that is, and you were to bow down in your heart 
and worship him. So the band is gonna sing and I'm gonna invite you to do something with me. This is something we do from time to time. And I know for those of you that are watching online, this will be a lot less awkward for you than it will be for those of us in the room. But I'm gonna invite you to simply do this. That as the band leads us in this song, you can remain seated. But if at some point during this song, as a response, as a way of publicly declaring to the people in this room, but more importantly to your heavenly father, would you stand symbolically as your way of saying what, you know who and what it is, doesn't matter. But allow this moment to be just kind of like, God, this is my t- me taking my first step in submitting my life, whoever and whatever that is, to you. If that's you, at some moment during this song, as awkward as it may seem, there's power in declaring publicly what you believe. And it's, there's power in publicly declaring your surrender and your loyalty. Herod did it in front of Caesar. I invite you to do it today in front of the Savior. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to gather in this way, in this space, and in this place. It never ceases to amaze me that God, as mystical, as magical as it may seem, as unbelievable as it may be, that as we gather in this place and as we gather in homes and as we join together and as we open up your word, the pages of history, you have promised that you speak in these moments. That God, right now, it's not Scott speaking, it's you speaking and you are speaking to these people and you know what they need, God. You know where they are. You know what it is. You know who it is in their lives that they are trying to control. You know the kingdom that they're trying to build. You see it, you know it. There's no, thing, there's no mystery to you. And so God, I ask in the name of Jesus that in this moment, that God, you would bring people to a place, your people to a place of humility and surrender and that, God, they would relinquish control of their perceived kingdom and accept the invitation to participate in yours. And I pray right now that through your Holy Spirit, you would do something powerful in people's lives and that they would leave this place freer as they let go of everything and everyone that they're trying to control. In Jesus' name. thank you so much for joining us today. If you have any questions, you're looking for ways to take your next step, please visit us on our website, bridgechurches.ca. Much love. God bless.